A new wave of Martian explorers. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The first of three robotic explorers has arrived at the Red Planet. The United Arab Emirates Hope probe successfully entered the orbit of Mars, becoming the first spacecraft for the UAE to visit the Red Planet. HOPE will continue to finalize its orbit before carrying out its mission, mapping the complex weather on Mars. It's not the only mission heading to the Red Planet. Two more missions from NASA and the Chinese Space Agency are en route. To talk about this new fleet of Martian explorers and what questions they seek to answer, we'll speak with Jake Robbins. He's the host of the We Martians podcast, has been following these missions since before their launches last summer. The new Mars robots, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. After nearly seven months of zooming through space, UAE's Hope probe fired its engines for 27 minutes, slowing it down just enough for Mars to capture the spacecraft in its orbit. With this successful insertion of the spacecraft into the orbit of Mars, UAE has successfully sent its first spacecraft to the Red Planet. To talk more about this milestone mission and the science to come, we're joined by Jake Robbins. He hosts the podcast We Martians. Jake, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Jake, walk us through uh, what happened today. Why was this such a crucial maneuver uh, for the HOPE mission? Yeah, so the Mars Hope, like uh, all the other missions it launched last year, has been traveling through space across the solar system for the last six or seven months or so. And at this point today, it reached where Mars uh, ended up as well. So they kind of meet at one spot across the solar system, and it has to ignite its engines to match the speed of Mars. Otherwise, it'll just fly right by it. So it's a really mission-critical maneuver where it fires up all six engines on the spacecraft, it slows itself down so that Mars's gravity can capture it into an orbit and they can start their mission. So if this doesn't go right, the mission doesn't proceed. So it's a, it's, you know, it's the most important and uh, time sensitive part of the entire uh, end to end mission. And this was done with a lot of the software on board the probe, right? I mean, there's no, there's nobody flying this, right? Because it, there's a quite a bit of a delay uh, getting information to and from Mars, right? That's right. Yeah. Mars is pretty far away from us right now. And the signal delay, which is the time that it takes for a radio signal to leave the spacecraft, go across the solar system and hit our receivers is about 10 and a half minutes right now. And so with that kind of latency, you have no capability to actually directly control these spacecraft. So what they do is they pre-program all of the events they need to do to happen in succession. They have an onboard computer that executes all the steps and tries to figure out where it is and you know, burn the engines for the right amount of time. And they just have to hope that everything that they programmed was right. So it's a, it's a scary part for mission controllers because you just kind of have to sit and watch and hope that you did everything right. Uh, and then you're also hearing everything, a lot, you know, 10 and a half minutes behind. And so when you hear that first signal, hey, the engines have started, they've actually been burning for 10 and a half minutes. And so it's kind of a, a bizarre way to wrap your head around the the you know, the logistics of what's happening, but it's how all spacecraft work when you're dealing with these planetary missions far out into the solar system. I mean, it was nerve wracking for me following along. I'm sure it's got to be uh, <laughs> a very nervous uh, uh, mission control while they're waiting for that signal to come back. 
Well, that's right. I mean, imagine you're an engineer working on this mission. You've been putting this spacecraft together for the last six and a half years. You've been assembling all the components, writing all your software, testing, 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 and then you have to stick it onto a giant rocket and you know send it into an explosive trajectory into the solar system. All that work kind of culminates on these kind of critical moments. And so, uh, you know, we're we're you know watching with trepidation here from the comfort of our homes and on social media, but they're actually living this mission very, very viscerally right now. So I have a ton of sympathy for anyone that works on these spacecraft because it's just got to be a, a really stressful point in your life. You mentioned you're working on this mission for six and a half years. Um, you and I were talking about this on on Twitter. This this is just like a dizzying pace for a mission to come together and successfully, you know, enter the orbit of Mars. Kind of walk us through how this mission progressed over these very short six years uh, until today. Yeah, that's right. So this is the the first um, interplanetary mission for the United Arab Emirates. And in fact, it's their first real official mission ever. So this space agency only you know, came to a formal existence in 2014. They'd been doing some work with some Earth observation satellites before that, but it was kind of like a university institution situation. You know, it was very small. They got the formal uh, space agency in 2014, and this was their first project. We're going to go to Mars and send this orbiter uh, there. And so that's a very fast timeline. So, you know, 2014, they announce it. Then you have to invent a space agency and invent a team to do that, then invent a spacecraft, build the spacecraft, and then launch it and do all this stuff in that short period of time. So it's really quite remarkable for this kind of fledgling uh, institution to do this. Uh, so they were really smart the way they wanted to approach this. Um, part of the, the, the goal of this whole project is not just to do this science at Mars, but also to sort of build that skilled workforce so that you can keep doing more and more space missions uh, in the future. And they didn't have a lot to work with because, like I said, it's a very new organization. It's a very new country, in fact. They've only been around for about 50 years, which is their, it's their anniversary this year. And so their two choices were really, you know, do we build it from scratch, which is sort of the path that countries like, well, the United States did that, you know, back in the 60s. Um, India and China are very much on that kind of um, trajectory where they're building their own industrial base and learning everything from scratch, making all the same mistakes so that they have that knowledge. The other way they could do it was just to buy all the services. It's very um, possible these days to just go onto the market, say, I want to buy this rocket and this spacecraft and, you know, put it where you want to put it. And you can do that very quick, but then you don't build the skills. And so what they did at the uh, UAE Space Agency was kind of a blend. They took a team of people that they wanted to train and they embedded them into institutions around the world. So, you know, for their uh, uh, Earth observation satellites, they used this company in South Korea, but they put their engineers, you know, moved to South Korea and worked with those teams. So they were using services to produce these things, but also learning how to do it along the way. And for the spacecraft, in fact, they used the University of Colorado in the United States. So all those uh, Emirati engineers, you know, flew out to Colorado. They lived there for a few years while they assembled this spacecraft in Colorado and then uh, got, you know, instrumentation from different institutions in the United States. I think the University of Arizona and uh, University of California, Berkeley participated as well. And so they kind of really rapidly iterated. They were able to leverage existing skill sets, but then come away from it with a workforce that can do this in the future. So it's really quite special how they approached it. And the fact that they did all that so quickly and then launched this thing in a global pandemic and hit all their deadlines is just a, it's a really great story. Mm -hmm. So now that the HOPE uh, probe is in orbit, um, 
what's next? What are what are some of the important milestones that this mission will have to go through um, in order to continue, um, you know, making successful observations of, of Mars? Yeah, so right now it's in what's called a, kind of a capture orbit. So it's um, it's not the final orbit they want to be in. They fly really low right now. They capture at about a minimum point of about 1,000 kilometers. And then the highest point of the orbit is about 49,000 kilometers. So it's this wide kind of ellipse, which is not ideal for what the science they want to do. So they're going to spend the next 30 days or so adjusting that orbit. They're going to fire the engines a few more times and kind of tweak that orbit to get it exactly where they want. The final orbit is one that's going to be pretty special for them. It's going to be allow them to take full pictures of Mars. So, you know, imagine just being able to fit the entire planet in the frame of your camera. And they're going to do that every four orbits where the planet will kind of shift a quarter turn with each orbit. And so they can put together these full global maps of Mars pretty quickly, which is uh, very nice. The goal of the whole mission uh, overall with its science objectives is to study the Martian atmosphere. So they have about three different science instruments on board the spacecraft, and they're going to be studying things like the composition of the atmosphere, the structure of it, you know, how how high is the atmosphere, how deep into space does it go, um, what does the weather patterns on Mars look like. It's actually one of the first missions to look at this holistic approach, and uh, it should be returning some pretty good data. It's going to work in partnership with some American missions like the MAVEN spacecraft, uh, which is operated by NASA. Um, so that's pretty exciting as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to ask you what these science objectives are, um, and and so this this whole holistic look at Mars has got to be piquing the interest of, of scientists around the world, right? Yeah, and the Martian atmosphere has really um, sort of come forward as a really important pl- thing to study in the last, call it, you know, five to ten years. The, the MAVEN mission itself is uh, a, a physics mission that kind of studies the atmosphere that launched in 2014. Uh, we've had some weather instruments on board orbiters uh, in the last 10 or 15 years or so. The rovers on the ground are doing these ground truthing where they're, you know, they're measuring the temperature and the pressure on location on the surface and then comparing it with the orbiters. All of these things are kind of working together to start build up a much better model of how the atmosphere on Mars works. And it's it's pretty different, right? Because the pressure is so low, the temperature is very um, low compared to what we have here on Earth. And there's all these different weather patterns that uh, don't seem to you know, match up exactly how we would imagine them on Earth. And so the more we learn about that, the better we can uh, uh, not only just understand the the thermal cycles of the planet, but also prepare for human landings, right? Because if we ever want to send people to the surface of Mars, it's probably going to be helpful to have a weather report that's accurate because things like um, dust or or wind or radiation or all those kinds of things can can have impacts for people operating on the surface. And, and do we know how quickly this data is going to be coming back? Like, uh, will scientists be able to get their hands on it? Are we talking days, weeks, months? I mean, what's the turnaround here? Well, so the science mission itself should begin, like I said, after this 30-day orbit adjustment. They're going to have to go through something called instrument commissioning, which is where you sort of fire them up and make sure that they're calibrated and operable. Um, but they should be able to start collecting data pretty soon. Now, I don't have the final details on the release of the data. However, what I do know is that the United Arab Emirates have committed to sharing this uh, information with what they're saying is over 200 different institutions across the world. Uh, part of their goal is to be very transparent with this because science data should you know, transcend borders. It should kind of just be a human um, uh, possession, right? Not a, not a national possession. And so they're going to be sharing all this data as well as they can. It sounds like it's going to be pretty exciting. And uh, once we get that released into the, the hands of scientists all over the world, we'll see tons of different uh, results iterating on each other. That's kind of how science work it works. It builds and builds and builds upon study after study. Mm-hmm. 
you mentioned just the historic nature of this mission for the UAE, which has only been around for 50 years, and, and this space agency that's uh, only been around for, you know, six years. Um, can you kind of reflect on the impact this mission has for um, for the people of the United Arab Emirates um, and what this means for their space program going forward? Yeah, well, it's a very inspiring thing. So if you were watching the coverage this morning, they're they're very excited about it in the UAE. They had the uh, the coverage covering the the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world. It's that you know a massive pointy tower that you see in Dubai. They had the whole thing lit up with planetary imagery. It was a really it's pretty fun to see space kind of take a national stage like that, even if it's not in the country where you live. Um, the the mission itself is very inspiring because of uh, two things that come to mind for me is there's a large composition of women on the program and a large composition of young people on the program. And what they hope is that this will inspire the youth across the UAE and the Arab world to, you know, step up into these, imagine themselves in these amazing high tech careers, you know, building spacecraft, doing science on Mars, um, all these sort of uh, spin-off technologies and careers that come from that electrical engineering, aerospace engineering, things like that. And so what they're really hoping is that they're going to, you know, transition their economy from one that is really, really dependent on uh, old, old economy, uh, old economy, things like, you know, oil and, and fossil fuels into a high tech future where they're, they're not quite as dependent on that. And so it's pretty exciting. It's, it's inspiring, like I said, and I really hope that uh, it does well for them. The Hope Orbiter isn't the only mission heading to Mars. Two more missions, one from the Chinese Space Agency and the other from NASA, are en route. What discoveries can we expect from these robotic explorers? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. The UAE's Hope Orbiter is just the first of three missions arriving at Mars this month. Two others, one from the Chinese Space Agency and the other from NASA, are en route to the Red Planet. So what are these robotic explorers going to be doing once they get here? We're here to talk more about this fleet of Martian robots is Jake Robbins. He's the host of the podcast We Martians. Jake, thanks for sticking around. Hey, no problem. So, uh, as we mentioned, Hope isn't the only mission heading to Mars. Let's talk a little bit about China's Mars mission. Uh, What do we know about this one? Well, we know a lot less about this one. So, despite uh, uh, all of our our hopeful best efforts, uh, China is not the most transparent or forthcoming with, you know, their their mission progress. So, we've been piecing together information as we go. But we do know that they're going to be arriving tomorrow morning, uh, which is Wednesday, uh, February 10th, early in the morning here in North America. Um, they've got a lander, a rover, and an orbiter all packed into one mission. So it's a pretty uh, ambitious one to do. Uh, and what are some of the scientific objectives of, of this mission? What, what do we know? So this one, this mission is actually, like I said, it's very ambitious. They've got uh, the three different components of the spacecraft are going to be doing a whole you know, broad retinue of science. They're going to be studying the atmosphere, studying the surface from orbit, uh, doing geology and other geophysics from orbit. You've got this lander platform that's going to be kind of in situ on the ground and studying um, the environment around that location. And then a rover, which is going to be mobile. It's going to be moving around to different rocks and again, doing more geology and geophysics on the surface. So um, broadly, this is a mission that's just trying to understand how Mars works. Uh, I do know that China has long-term ambitions to send people deep into space. Uh, it's not anytime soon. So this is really, again, building that kind of groundwork 
uh, building the skills to study another planet so that you have the workforce enabled to, you know, do bigger and more ambitious things. Mm-hmm. And, and I know we don't know a lot about the inner workings of, of this mission, but is there a sense of how these kind of three parts, will they work together? Are they are they working independently? I mean, how will this system of, of you know, Chinese robots work? Yeah, they do have to work together. That's kind of the the brilliance of it. So what they're going to do is once they capture into orbit tomorrow, they're going to spend a couple of months all, you know, still bundled up together as one spacecraft in orbit around Mars. And they're going to start mapping the surface. So the the orbiter itself has a pretty good camera on it. It's uh, it's not quite as good as, say, the the best camera that the United States operates, which would probably be the high-rise instrument on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, but it's pretty close to that. So they're going to be able to get some really high-resolution images of the ground. They're going to put that map together. They're going to check out the landing spot that they've selected, uh, make sure they understand where all the hazards are, all the rocks and things they need to avoid. And once they're ready for that, they're going to be able to detach the rover. We're thinking sometime in late April, maybe early May, and that lander will descend to the surface through the atmosphere. And once they're on the ground, that lander, uh, is, if you think of it, it's kind of like a platform that, that lowers itself to the surface, and then the rover drives off of it. But the lander is going to remain as sort of a, a relay. So it's going to be communicating all the data from the rover back up to the orbiter and then back to Earth. So you have this kind of whole system built to get the, the instrumentation on the rover, get that data through the whole infrastructure back to Earth to study. So it's a kind of an integrated um, you know, system of, of spacecraft rather than you know, three independent missions. Is this China's first mission to Mars? It's their first dedicated one. They did make an attempt uh, early last decade to fly, um, I think it was called Yinghuo 1, which is like this little, almost like a CubeSat, if you can imagine it, a very small spacecraft. And it was flying um, on board another Russian mission to Mars. But unfortunately, that mission actually failed. The the spacecraft didn't even get out of Earth orbit. It crashed back into the ocean because of some rocket failure and, and component failures on board. And so they tried just that one uh, and at that point, they decided they wanted to do it by themselves. So they kind of kicked off this program and spent the last, you know, eight, eight, nine years or so putting together the uh, Chang'an 1 mission that we are uh, seeing arrive tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, and do you get the sense that this is kind of a, a foundational mission for, for things to come? Or are there, you know, specific scientific goals that they want to accomplish? Well, so there are definitely goals they want to accomplish for this. I mean, the, the, the Chang'an 1 mission is their first uh, exploration of Mars. So they, uh, Mars is a, is a prime target for planetary science, for uh, strategic national importance. It's, you know, one that they want to keep your eye on. So they do want Chang'an 1 to do a lot for Mars itself. Um, but we did learn, when they learned, uh, when they named this mission, Chang'an 1 is a, a, the one is not like for a, a Mars series, for you say. Uh, the Chang'an program is a planetary exploration series, and they want to have Chang'an 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 on into perpetuity that study all different planets across the solar system. Mm-hmm. They do have a lot of ambitions for Jupiter right now. They want to send a Jupiter orbiter uh, sometime in the next, you know, 5, 10 years or so. Uh, so that's kind of one that's, that's coming down the pipe for them on the horizon. And they've also expressed some pretty um, yeah, long-term aspirations, we'll call them, for even sending spacecraft outside the solar system. So yes, they definitely want to participate more in the planetary exploration across the solar system and not just at Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go ahead and take a look ahead to uh, the NASA mission uh, that is arriving next week. What can we expect um, from Perseverance's entrance uh, <laughs> into the Red Planet arena? 
Well, it should be an exciting one. So the the uh, the entry into the Martian atmosphere and landing on the surface is the scariest thing you can do at Mars in terms of uh, exploring. And so um, NASA is very good at sharing what's going on. There's a lot of information out there. So we're able to really get down into the details of this one. Uh, so it arrives on February 18th, which is a, and it's a great time too. It's uh, around just after noon on the Pacific coast here, uh, a little before four o'clock on the East coast. So it's a, a good, good time in the day. You don't have to get up early or anything like that. And uh, right now the rover's all buttoned up inside of a capsule with a little bit of a cruise stage attached to it. This is like a spacecraft that sort of transports it across the solar system and gives it power and navigation. So right before it arrives, it's going to detach from that cruise stage. The capsule's going to hit the atmosphere and it's going to go through a, a very fast series of steps, which has sort of come to be known infamously as the seven minutes of terror. Because mm-hmm. at you know at, at t- landing minus seven minutes, you're traveling at hypersonic velocities. Everything's very crazy and fast. And then seven minutes later, you're quiet on the surface. The rover is ready to go. So it's a lot to, to happen very quickly. It's going to use a complicated system of, of a heat shield to slow down with uh, friction against the atmosphere. It's got a big supersonic parachute the largest that's ever flown at mars 21 and a half meters wide uh, that deploys at you know mach 2 or something uh, and then it detaches from that and it's got this crazy rocket uh, cradle that lowers it to the surface and then uh, descends on a cable called the sky crane so it's going to be like literally hovering hovering in the air and and lowering this rover down on some metal cables so it's a it's a very complicated engineering contraption but we know it works because it did it for curiosity and we get to watch it all happen again for Perseverance. So I am really, really excited for it. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about this this landing site. What's it like? Give us a lay of the land. Yeah, so it's landing in a place called Jezero Crater. And I, it's hard for me to imagine a place that would be more exciting to explore than this. Um, Jezero is a, if you imagine it, is like a big crater that once held a um, a lake of water inside of it. And in fact, there was streams nearby that that you know were feeding it. And at one point in its history, the the inflow channel, so if you imagine this big river kind of hitting the side of the crater, it broke through the crater wall and spilled inside the crater, and it created this delta. So if you, um, if you know what the delta at the Mississippi Basin looks like, this is the same sort of structure we see inside this crater. And the watershed for this river, if you will... Uh, was you know feeding it from from this wide wide area of Mars, and so from a geologic perspective, you have all these different rocks from all over the place on Mars that were swept downstream into this delta into the crater. So we get sort of we get to kind of study a lot of different places on Mars in one spot, which is just like it's just awesome. Um, this landing site was only really discovered once the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter had uh, started taking high resolution images of it. We didn't know it was such a great place until then. And it's kind of a dangerous place to la- to launch uh, uh, to launch a, a spacecraft to because there are lots of hazards, different rocks, um, uneven terrain, and so we needed to develop the capability to land very accurately to do that. In fact, we would not have been able to land Curiosity here um, based on the accuracy that it had. So it, oh, wow. it took these last like five or six years of development to to build things like this uh, capability called range trigger and terrain relative navigation where while flying through the air, the spacecraft is literally taking pictures of the ground and comparing it with onboard maps and uh, adjusting its trajectory in those seven minutes of terror. So it's pretty special that we're able to land here. They were able to increase that accuracy so that the, you know, the, the cone of uncertainty, the sort of ellipse that is all the places you might land, depending on certain factors, is small enough to be safe. 
And so that's what's really exciting about this. We, we wanted to go here. We knew it was special, but we couldn't until now. And so we're taking that opportunity to really um, uh, do some pretty fun stuff. And speaking of fun stuff, there's also a helicopter <laughs> heading to the surface, right? <laughs> yes. that, that's, got, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's a technology demonstrator called Ingenuity. Um, I'm very excited for this for, for all the reasons you would expect. I mean, we're going to be flying this sort of drone, I guess. It's very much like a drone, kind of like a, a, mm-hmm. a, a single rotor, a double rotor copter that's going to deploy from the belly of the rover and then take off and fly around with cameras. So we're going to get some pretty stunning pictures of, you know, imagine the drone taking a picture of the rover on the ground. We've never seen a rover like that from that angle. And then vice versa, the rover taking the picture of the helicopter in the sky is going to be pretty special. But I think the most important thing about this demonstrator, which uh, what I'm going to be tracking over the next few years is if it's successful and it demonstrates that this is a useful technology to have on Mars, we could see aerial exploration become a mainstay in Mars exploration. Um, Working together with the rovers and the drones to sort of the drones scouting out the areas and getting better maps and then guiding the rover to drive to um, better places uh, faster, knowing, you know, the information ahead, what's over that next rise. Are there any dangers like sharp rocks or sand? So using those things together should increase sort of the productivity of these missions And I can't imagine a world where humans are exploring Mars without the assistance of robots like rovers and drones. And so this is sort of a key technology milestone we have to hit if we ever want to send people there. Mm -hmm. And finally, Jake, um, while these missions are are all very exciting, um, what are you most looking forward to on the horizon when it comes to Mars exploration? Well, there's, a, there's always a lot going on. Um, this, this Perseverance rover is the first of a trifecta of missions that form part of NASA's Mars Sample Return Campaign. Um, so the Perseverance rover is going to be drilling into the ground, drawing up these rock cores, and then storing them in little canisters for retrieval later. In the later part of this decade, around 2026, 2027 kind of area, uh, we're going to be launching two more missions to, to finish this off. There's going to be one which is the lander platform for a fetch rover. So they're going to put another lander in the same area. The small little rover is going to drive around and pick up all those samples that Perseverance leaves behind, return it to the lander, and stick it on a small Mars rocket that's going to launch back into space. And then the third mission, which is done in partnership with the European Space Agency, will be an Earth return orbiter that's going to meet that rocket in Mars orbit, transfer the samples over, and then fly them back to Earth and return them to scientists here so that they can study them in labs. That's a long process. Uh, we shouldn't expect to have those samples back until about 2031. So it's kind of a 10-year thing we need to, to wait for. But having pristine samples from a geological site like Jezero Crater, like we talked about, um, you know, scouted out by this high-tech rover Perseverance is going to create some high, high-value uh, scientific things that we will be studying for the next 50 years. Um, they will They will fundamentally change what we know about Mars the same way that the Apollo samples changed what we know about the moon. And it's hard not to be really, really excited about that. We've been speaking with Jake Robbins. He hosts the podcast, We Martians. Be sure to check it out for the latest in Mars news. Get it wherever you get this show or visit wemartians.com. Jake, thank you so much for coming back. It's always my pleasure. You can stay up to date with all of these missions on our website as well. Visit wmfe.org space. You can also stay connected online. We're on Twitter and Instagram at AWTYSpace. On Facebook, just search for Are We There Yet podcast or shoot me an email, yet at WMFE.org. And if you're not already, be sure to and if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. You can do that on NPR One's, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.